0: Y'all, today on the podcast, I am talking to Kevin O'Leary. That's right. Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank is in the house and his story and how he has built to this place in his career is so fascinating for those of you who are entrepreneurs or for those of you who dream of starting your own thing. He was born in a middle-class family and his mother's heritage of merchants and his father's Irish charisma truly paved the path for the person he would become. I'm actually pretty surprised by how much Mr. Wonderful was actually pretty wonderful. I hope you enjoy this conversation in today's podcast. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. So Kevin, I'm so excited to have you here and get to talk to you. I feel like as an entrepreneur, there are kind of a handful of people that we can look up to in the world, and you and the other sharks are definitely that for us. So I guess let's start with what you're working on, because this project is really exciting, and I loved hearing that it's something that's been in the works for a while. So tell us what's cooking.
1: You know, new new television formats are are very difficult to launch at any time, but particularly during a pandemic. But I've been working on this for a while because... I think fundamentally, it's a really interesting idea. The concept is, if you think about what's happened during the pandemic, we've got tens of thousands of cases, litigation, primarily business litigation, that stuck in the court system because during the pandemic, there was no courts. And so they were taking care of very serious crimes, but not the ones that affect business. And 65% of jobs in America are created by small business. Often these are family businesses that started, were successful, and they grew up. But any time there's a conflict in a business like that, it can be devastating to the value inherent and also damage relationships with customers, employees, shareholders, you name it. And so it's really important when you have litigation to try and settle it. And what has happened through the court system is that arbitration has become a way for two litigants to settle and resolve their issues. All we're doing in money court is, is actually recording that. And people have actually agreed to allow me to actually be an arbitrator in their case and settle it for them. In addition, I brought with me two fantastic co-hosts: Ada Pozo, who's a, a former federal judge, sat on the bench for many years, and also Katie Fang, a trial attorney. And uh, it's a it's a remarkable format because we deal with the real thing, real cases, real litigation. People in t- turmoil, and it makes for very compelling television.
0: Was there something about that? Like, did it feel like a lot of pressure for you to make that decision, or you feel like, no, nope, you have a good, solid understanding of what feels fair and just?
1: You know, I, I do this every day. I've got over 34 companies in my portfolio, and every day there's drama. There's always mitigation <laughs> right. or some catastrophic news or some euphoric news. I'm used to it every day. I mean, every day something's happening. And very often I'll find myself in the middle of a a really difficult dispute. And and the key that people should understand is nobody makes money in litigation except the lawyers most of the time. So if you you can actually solve it, get in the middle and and be trusted by both sides to find a resolution, that's a far better outcome for the business and and the shareholders. And what I found so interesting in the, in the journey of, you know, when we were casting the cases and, and the lawyers, et cetera, one person said, you know, I'm gonna to agree to do this and let Mr. Wonderful decide for me. I don't like him that much, but I trust him.
0: Yeah. And I'm
1: very, I'm very happy with that outcome, actually.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was there some part of you that there's like a little bit of validation in this, and in oftentimes in legal disputes, I feel like things the, the law will sort of side in ways that don't necessarily always make sense to us as the entrepreneur, as the business owner, like they'll, they'll sort of find like legal loopholes to get something done. So was there any part in this process where you got to sort of make something the way it should be instead of the way like legally it would typically get resolved?
1: That was what was great about the format because yes, I had a federal judge and I had a trial attorney and they really understood the law and the contract law and what the law says. But the final decision was always mine. And I said, I'm going to decide for the business because Mm -hmm. the business sustains all the employees, all the shareholders, all the customers. You have to always solve for the business, not one individual over another. And that's sort of how I judge these cases. And, And I'm very proud that afterwards in the post interviews that I didn't get to see, these people abided by my decisions because they felt they were right. And, and, you know, that's I think that comes from experience of having to having done this every day for decades. And so I, I think the format itself um, is going to do quite well because people see themselves in these cases, even though they're gut wrenching in some situations, a mother suing a daughter, mm-hmm. siblings fighting, you know, family torn apart because of money. They, they've, they've seen it before in their own families. And, and that's why I think it's very compelling. You're kind of realizing it can happen to anybody and hopefully everybody learns from these outcomes.
0: I'm curious, like you you talk about, you just said you have 34 companies in your portfolio. Can you take me back to how How did you make the transition from I own a business or I'm an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm doing this thing to I'm building a portfolio. I have, you know, I'm a holding company. I'm this bigger thing. Was that a conscious decision or was it something that happened organically?
1: No, it happened organically. And I've talked to many others that are in my situation that kind of do this and It just happens over time. In my situation, I remember I was living in in Boston. Our business was in Cambridge. And we we got acquired for $4.2 billion. And there was 10 of us that were really founders. So it was a huge liquidity event. And I remember we all came back the next morning and said, what do we do now? I mean, you know, it's sort of, we were still working. We didn't know anything else. And I had decided at that time, well, I'm going to take a little holiday here. And I wanted to go visit the, the world's best beaches. And just as an idea. Uh, and I went everywhere around the world to Thailand, to Cambodia, to the North coast of Cyprus. I mean, Morocco, uh, North coast of Egypt, all these incredible places, but it got really boring. Yeah. And I just said, Oh, another beach who gives a shit. You know, it's sort <laughs> of, and, and I said, I got to get back in the game. And um, I, I, you know, returned home to Boston and started looking at opportunities and became an investor, multiple operators and use my experience to help them. And, uh, and then the next thing I knew some of those companies were successful and we sold them. And, and then I just started, you know, repurposing this capital and I don't need more money. I, I like to keep what I've got obviously. And I make mistakes sometimes when I invest, but, uh, luckily I'm fortunate that in the majority of the times they're winners and, um, they generate more cash to do more investments with. So I'm sort of like a, uh, investor, uh, you know, advocate for CEOs. Yeah. Uh,
0: you, you said something that reminded me, have you ever read the book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight? Yes. You yes. know, when he talks about it's sort of the worst day of his, I mean, he's, you know, being dramatic, but he talks about it's like the worst day of his life when he finally sells the business and when he finally retires, because it's sort of like, what do I do now? You know, what, what do I do now that I've had all this success and I've done all these things and, And, you know, it's it's the not the hustle, but sort of that activity that so many of us has have partaken in as entrepreneurs for so long. Like, how do you let it go? So I love and am fascinated by people like you who kind of take it and then help others come up in that way.
1: Yeah, I've been, you know, money does not buy you happiness, but it makes being miserable a lot easier. That's what (laughs) I like to say.
0: That's real. That's super real. So, as you as you look to the future, is that still a big part? The investment piece is still a big part of what you want to do. Or are you kind of leaning in this new direction with judge, jury, and all the things like you're doing on the show?
1: Well, I'm really fascinated by something that's emerged in the last 24 months in in the economy and in investment theory. This idea that you've um, seen it happen. Just it's only been 18 months, really. There's, there's an emergence of, of social media and media can now affect market capitalization stock prices. And mm-hmm. we've seen it happen with the meme stocks and what's happened with you know, Tesla and what's happened with Reddit and Robinhood and all these things. And what I found is the fact that I have millions of followers can really affect the outcome of a business. Right. If you know, and so people approach me all the time saying, look, will you, will you? can we pay you some stock options so that you'll promote our business? I say, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But if I like your business, I'll buy a third of it and I'll become a founding partner and I'll help you blow it up because I don't I like to be transparent. I like to tell people the truth about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And and people can smell BS a mile away Absolutely. on social media. And, and they know that I'm getting involved in, in these companies at an early stage to, to blow them up. And I've been very successful with that. So I'm expensive, you know, I'm, I yeah. don't do, I don't care what venture capitalists pay and what valuation they pay, I don't care about any of that. I, I sit down with the entrepreneur, I say, look, I don't care what your last round was at, here's what I'm willing to pay you to, to buy a third or whatever it's gonna be. And after that, I'll participate in every financing we do, but I'm gonna, ch- I'm gonna change your world nobody can do what I can do for you. And, 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 you know, there are, there are no venture capital guys that have millions of followers. They, They don't, I do. And I understand the difference.
0: Why do you think you've been so successful? Have you ever like summed it up in your mind of, you know, here are these guiding principles that have led me to this place?
1: I think it's something my mother taught me when I was 14, and I never thought of it at that time. It it affected me years later. She said to me once, if you always tell the truth, you'll never have to remember what you said. Mm. And I, I thought, yeah, okay, but, you know, not everybody wants to hear the truth. But over time, I started adapting to that methodology which got me in a lot of trouble. I mean, you look at shark tank where I do it every day and everybody says, I'm the mean shark. I'm the only one that tells the truth. The rest are saying, I'm I'm not going to invest with you, but I don't want to hurt your feelings. You keep doing what you're doing and bankrupt your family. That's fine. Even Mm. your idea has no merit and it's going to go to zero, which I tell them, but you know, it's sort of that, that's that framework. I think uh, maybe people, not everybody likes you, but they respect you. And I think maybe that's you know I, I don't I find that you know people on social media, even the ones that don't like me follow me and you know harass me saying I hate the way you said that or you did this, but they're still following me I mean right. why
0: right you know? that's so real when you um, are investing in companies are you looking for specific types of Companies, or you've sort of invested across the board. Like it's a pretty, pretty broad portfolio that you have.
1: I, I have a really broad portfolio. I mean, it's almost in every sector and almost every state. And I've got technology companies that do wireless power transmissions. I've got insecticides. I've got commercial kitchens that make cupcakes. Um, you know, I've I've got uh, DeFi and and, and uh, cryptocurrency deals all kinds of stuff. And, and what I find is the outcomes are unknown. I mean, they're just serendipitous in some way. So the portfolio itself is constantly generating cash because everybody knows I'm a royalty guy or I'm a debt guy or whatever it is, but I also do equity deals. But, and and then once, you know, even yesterday, I got a phone call from one of my companies and they just got offered a, a huge premium to be, you know, acquired. And they're asking me, you know, do I did I want to sell my position? I said, well, let my guys look at the deal. I mean, you know, I, I generally want to return my capital and put it back to work again. So and that's going to be a really successful outcome. And I would have never guessed it two years ago. You yeah. just don't know. That's my point.
0: Yeah. So, so if you're, if you're working with someone and let's say we have a ton of small business owners who listen to this podcast, let's say you're walking in, they're lucky enough, they get a day with you, or maybe it's an hour because your schedule is insane. They get some time with you. You're walking in to, to look at a company. What are those elements that you look at if you're trying to advise someone and sort of help them to grow that bottom line or expand reach? What are the like hard and fast, like you always look at these things in a new business?
1: Well, well, here's a fact that um, that is kind of interesting. I, and I've been doing this for such a long time, but over the last 13 years, 75% of my returns have come from the companies run by women. And so <laughs> it's, and, and the reason I think that has happened, because we tried to understand that outcome across so many, so much time and so many different sectors. When we went back and looked at, the data from these outcomes. Remember, when you're investing privately, it's return of capital that's most important, not on capital. you got to get your principal back. And women-led companies, women are very good at mitigating risk. And so when we actually looked at quarterly sales objectives over a five-year period in the first study, and then over seven in the second, We found that the the companies run by men uh, hit their targets in terms of revenue about 65% of the time, but the average growth rate was, the target was 30% annually, which is very good, Mm -hmm. but they only hit it 65% of the time. And then we looked at the women-led companies, they hit their targets 95% of the time, almost 195% but their growth on average over that seven year study was only 15%. They're half that of the men. So the testosterone target versus the pragmatic target. Now, why would that affect outcome? And so we did a little more digging and the reason it works and why we've adopted it as our new philosophy is when you set targets that your team reaches 95% of the time, the culture in the company changes. It becomes Mm -hmm. very sticky. People don't leave. So the person running accounting or sales or logistics or compliance in in a business can be very disruptive when those people leave for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. But when a team is humming and it's working and hitting its targets, you have no disruption and and cash flows are much higher. And so we don't want to set targets in our companies anymore that nobody reaches. That's stupid. Right, right. And and so and, and the companies that have done this better, even though these women don't know each other, they do it intuitively and, you know, that old adage, you want something done, give it to a busy mother. That's true. <laughs> Balancing all of the things that happen in a, in a, in a woman's life, in children and family and business and all of that's really hard and they, they're able to do it. So I'm a little biased now when you ask me, what do I look for? I look for a woman running a company. Right. That's, that, that's what I so that's, you know, and I don't want to be sexist. I don't, I don't want to start gender warfare, but I'd give money to a goat if I get a return. <laughs> but but, but I, I prefer to invest in women.
0: That's awesome. And I feel like it's something that's so important for the women who are listening to this to hear because a lot of times they don't put themselves out there. They don't try. They don't look for capital. They don't, because it's just sort of this innate thing of like, oh, I'm going to play small and I'm going to play it safe. And I like hearing that in some instances, being a bit more cautious, like being cautious, but hitting your goals, as opposed to setting these like astronomical, we're going to aim at the moon and get there some of the time really is paying off for you guys.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And we've a lot of empirical data. It's been so long. And so, you know, we just know it intuitively. We kind of you know, we meet various CEOs. We look for those attributes. Risk mitigation, because you know things are going to happen. You know, as mm-hmm. I, as I like to say in business, shit happens. Right. And you got to be you got to be able to pivot. Nobody saw the pandemic coming, and right. that really changed America. We all jumped to the digital pivot, direct to consumer, all of that stuff that happened over the last year and a half has been really important to just determining who is our winner and who's a loser in the portfolio.
0: How do you see that continuing to shift? Because I think obviously I feel like in the beginning we pivoted once now it feels like we're pivoting once a quarter and it's going to continue to change. The economy has been affected. I don't think we've seen anywhere near the fallout of that, that we're going to like, is there something that you're sort of looking at in the next, you know, six, 12 months that it's like, you're feeling good. You feeling like winter's coming. Like, how are you feeling about where we're at?
1: What I've realized is, you know, let me give you one, uh, data point, because we've got so many employees in our supply chain, probably 10,000 on average now. We made the assumption in December that 15% of the staff would not return. They were primarily in the jobs of accounting, compliance, and logistics, because they, they sat in cubicles at headquarters, and they'd gotten used to working remotely and successfully. So, and, you know, from suburbs, raising children or taking care of elderly parents, whatever it was... And so we planned in, in for this year, the first six months to downsize our corporate headquarters by about 15%, but that's not the outcome. It's over 35% do not want to return
0: mm-hmm. more
1: than double. And they're just saying, we don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to commute for an hour and a quarter into Chicago or New York or Miami or Detroit, whatever. And I don't want to, if you can't provide me a job remotely, um, you know, I'm going to find work somewhere else. They're willing to come in once a quarter, maybe once a month or something, but not often. And I think that's a one permanent change in America. And the other one that has really been profound, and we've saved a lot of money, as, as a you know a result of reducing commercial real estate. We even there's been so much direct consumer change in our product mix that there's many stores we're never opening again. We don't need yeah. them. We've got yeah. the customers back direct. The other thing is business travel and entertainment. We, that budget has. And slot and cut in half. I, I don't think I don't think we're going to be doing that much anymore because we can do it on Zoom and we're successful with it. And people say, "Oh, don't worry, it's going to come back." I don't think so. I yeah. think it's going to take a very long time. There are permanent changes in behavior, uh, and I think you have to just deal with them as a result of what I call Digital America 2.0. Mm-hmm.
0: You talked about you know at the beginning of our conversation. You talked about this idea that at any given moment you can pick up your phone and there's could be a celebration to be had or a crisis to be had you have so many different companies and that's just what's going to happen shit happens in business right so how do you manage the stress of that do you feel like you're used to it at this point you've been in it for so long or are there things that you do to make sure that you're managing your you know adrenal fatigue or you're managing yes. your cortisol like what are you doing to make sure that you can maintain
1: we get data weekly, um, tear sheets on revenue and free cash flow. Those are the only two numbers we need to look at because we've been in these businesses for years. It gives us the, it's like, the, it's the EKG of the business. Those are the two numbers you need to look at because they're private. We don't care about stock price, revenue. And free cash flow, because if something's happening on the top line, it's declining. We need to know that if something's happening on the income statement, we need to know that because reduced cash flow. But generally, we're able to manage with those two numbers. And we, we generally speak to our companies once a quarter, although they call us uh, for social media support all the time. You know, we, we enjoy a huge presence on network television, on cable on social media, on all of the things we do. Um, you know, I've got millions of followers. I'm always keeping them updated on what's happening with my businesses. Because people are interested. I mean, these are real human stories about men and women running companies and everybody sees themselves in that role one day, one way or another. So I I look at it and say, um, it's, it's it's storytelling. That's what we're doing. And we're adding, uh, we're reducing customer acquisition costs on these companies, because that's the number one reason companies have got a business in America today. They're never able to get their customer acquisition costs below the lifetime value of the customer. Yeah, They go bankrupt advertising. That's the problem. And so we try and avoid that with our companies, and we're pretty successful at it.
0: And how are you then, like, does it feel stressful for you to manage all these things? Or are you just like, this is my life. I've been in it for so long.
1: Yeah, that the more the latter. This is my life. I've been in so long every day. There's just catastrophe somewhere. I just yeah. dealt with it an hour ago. And, yeah. and another euphoric call, like the one I told you about on the takeout offer, that's the same day, yeah. sometimes in the same hour. It's so I, like for me, it's sort of let's reduce that hypertension. You know, we're going to have the shit happens metric and we're going to have the euphoria and neither of them are
0: Real? You can't let either
1: <laughs> of them dissuade you that much. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I'm in the wine business. I always enjoy a glass of my own Chardonnay at four o'clock. Nice. Um, and, um, you know, I like to hang out with my wife and kids for dinner or wherever I'm going to be. I travel quite a bit, um, even in, in these crazy times. So it, it's sort of... Um, it's, it, it, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in the groove. You know. Yeah. I'm in the groove. Yeah, you and have it nice, Yeah. I, I, I can't. I can't let it stress me out. Sometimes I make money. Sometimes I lose money. You just never know.
0: Yeah. How important is health? It looks like you're wearing a whoop strap or some sort of. Is that what that is yes. on your wrist?
1: Yeah, um, so I'm wearing a I'm wearing a Whoop, and I'm also wearing you know an aura. I, yeah, I uh, I, really I listen tracking. to. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting because I I'm in a group called the Longevity League, uh, which was founded by uh, the former CEO of Magna, a very big car parts company I own some stock in, and he he would hold these online seminars and invite guest speakers in. Uh, that had various interesting research going on in longevity and cognitive health. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm into that. And uh, one day I, I listened to a presentation by uh, uh, Richard Isaacson from Cornell. And he had just recently been published in various medical journals, including a long article in the, in the Wall Street Journal. And his basic thesis, very simple, was that he can arrest dementia. Can't cure it, but he can arrest it with exercise, diet and sleep. And I was just fascinated. You know, I just listened to him and I just went, wow, I got to get into that guy's protocol. I mean, I want to try that because, you know, you know, I've got people in my own family that that had Alzheimer's and, you know, every family knows somebody touched by dementia usually. Mm -hmm. And I I don't want that to be my outcome. I want to have the best quality of life as long as I can have it. And I sat down with him uh, in my home in Miami or his office is there um, by Zoom and went through a huge battery of cognitive testing and then a whole series of different tests that that I agreed to and wanted to become part of the protocol. And that guy really changed my outlook. And and all of this stuff, all of it, he's he's monitoring all my diet, all, all of the fasting I do, I mean, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole on it but I fast 16 hours a day every yeah. day. Intermittent I work fasting, out yeah. Uh, yeah and I and, and it really gives me more energy and I work out every morning in a routine that I enjoy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I watch all my uh, you know data and I can see, you know, how things affect sleep and then how you know how glucose works and all that stuff. So the whole idea there is you feel better when you care about your health and your sleep and what yes. you eat. What an incredible thing. I never used to think about diet. I'd say everything in moderation. When you eat well, it changes your life.
0: It does. And I, you know, I love asking this question because I think when I was earlier in my career, you know, 15, 16 years ago, as a younger entrepreneur, I would run myself into the ground, like not eat all day or have a ton of espresso or not get enough sleep. You know, that was sort of the hustle that, I was younger then too, but sort of thought that that was the way to, you know, achieve all the things. And I am wildly more productive, effective, focused, energized now that I understand how to take care of my health and everybody that I know who's a high achiever, whether that's as an author, a speaker, an entrepreneur, whatever it is, everybody I know is focused on it and cares about it. And so I always tend to ask because I think it's important, especially for younger entrepreneurs listening to this, who are working parents, who are trying to figure it all out, they'll pour everything out to the business, so they'll pour everything out to everyone else and not have anything left in the tank for them. And really, if you own the company, the success of the company is very equated to how well you are mindset, body, energy, spiritually. Like, are you okay? Because if you're okay, you can take care of the business and if you're not you're fucked
1: and the thing is everybody says oh how can you fast for 16 hours it takes 3 weeks to adjust your body and and you you're not you're never hungry anymore yeah like, i agree and you have energy like you can't believe and i right. I, I couldn't believe it i said why didn't I do this twenty years ago? Yeah. And so now, I, like, I'm totally on board with this. I don't. You brought it up, so I was happy to talk about it. But yeah. I, don't, I don't lecture people on it. Yeah. But I see a lot of people wearing auras and whoops, mm-hmm. and I I see them. You know, m- when I break fast every day, it, it's, it's it's you know it's it's steel cut oats that I right. make myself right. with blueberries and raspberries. Right. That's that's my kind of lunch, right. and I love it, and I look forward to it. And then I have one more meal in the day and that's it. And I really give a shit what, what I'm eating. Like I really right, care.
0: Right, and I do think it. That's a, that's a great point too because it is really nice to have one less thing to think about. And I love food. Like I love a beautiful meal with like multi-courses and you're celebrating with friends and it's an experiential thing, but day in and day out, I'm just going through my work day I, I break my fast with a green smoothie. It's disgusting. I nobody wants to eat this. This is not, but it's so freaking good for me, and I feel such a difference in my life. So I just I wanted to touch on that because I do think for I, those I, you who I, are I listening, I think everybody
1: listening should try it. It's yeah. all it, it takes it takes three weeks to 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 adjust, and then all of a sudden you're doing your body such a favor by bringing that insulin and that glucose down. Right. And it's just, it's because you got to think about it in the old days, people did not snack all day long on shitty food.
0: Right. they and never working did. out, of, People are working out of their house now. The kids, yeah. right there. Yeah. It's a, it is a game changer. And I do think I, when I, I started it last year, I think I started it maybe in COVID and I'd heard about it forever, but I thought that's not for me. That's whatever. I can't believe how much energy I have. I yeah, cannot no, believe amazing. how much it changes it's, and
1: me. i i thanked i thanked thank richard isaacson so many times and and we still communicate because my is still going in and and you know, you know there's anyways it's it's fantastic and i think it really is a way to set your you know the, the the last quarter of your life in a way that you really enjoy it
0: so you said something that that sparked a thought for me you talked about being in a group that was you know about longevity but i'm curious how much do you think that sort of our proximity to like-minded people or even people who are further along than us affects our success in life? Like, do you have a group of friends or fellow entrepreneurs or like a mastermind or people in your life that elevate your way of thinking? And how important has that been?
1: Well, speaking of the longevity league, we also had a guest speaker come in and talk about, you know, happiness in life, which I thought was a great topic. And what he concluded after much study, you know, academic study is that, relationships, long-term relationships, smaller groups, because you can't have friendships with 200 people. Yeah. But If you have strong relationships to 20 to 25 people in your life, you tend to be happier long-term. So, you know, I obviously, you know, have a lot of, of noise coming into my life through social media and everything else. And, and I spend my day doing television, all the rest of that stuff. Um, I, I'm on TV four hours a day, sometimes five hours doing exactly what we're doing here because I'm supporting all my companies and my projects. But, you know, my my relationships stay constant. They're all around the world. And I I go out of my way to stay in touch with those people uh, because, you know, that that is the baseline for what what gives you a reason to exist kind of thing. You know, not just family, but also friendships that matter to me over time. And as they say, you can't make new old friends. And so you should really uh, cherish your relationships with those if you've known for a long period of time. And the only way to do that is to make time for them. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I try and do that. I mean, I've got a lot of different pressures pulling me back and forth. But, you know, if I'm driving somewhere, or I'm in transit, I'll get on the phone and just call somebody and say, hey, how's it going? Just to stay in touch. And that that touch point, even every few months really matters. And so uh, that I recommend that for everybody because, you know, we're, we're in a social media world now and, and just tweeting all day long or putting out posts on TikTok Well, I I really believe in those platforms for supporting my businesses. That's not exactly, uh, you know, staying in touch with your long-term friends.
0: Yeah, I love that. Well, uh, we're not long-term friends, but I'm glad that we're new friends. And I really appreciate the time that you spent with us today and the insight that you gave us. Uh, Tell listeners again where they can find the new show, where they can find you on social. Give us all the juicy details.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the show is going to air. Its premiere will be 10 o'clock on CNBC this Wednesday. I'm really interested and proud of the show because I worked on it. uh, You know, I'm I'm an executive producer on it. And I've, you know, I've done a lot of television in my life. And I'll tell you an anecdotal story and and why I'm so optimistic about what's going to happen here. When you make television in a studio, um, when you're doing live TV and it's being cut to tape, as, as Shark Tank is and all the other shows I've worked on, there may be 150 or 200 people in the crew there, the lighting people, the gaffers, the sound technicians, the makeup people. They're all there. These people are professionals. They make television. They don't watch it. They make it. And that's their job. And so they're pretty sanguine about they don't really get involved. On Money Court, because we would never shot it before, and we went into Tillamundo Studios in Miami, which is, the most modern digital studio I've ever seen. It's the size of an airport. It's incredible. When J Lo rehearsed for her Super Bowl, they did it in a, in a stadium inside one of those sound stages the same size as the football field. That's how big wow. it is. So they're able to have the marching bands and everything else. It's a huge, huge digital stage. And so we shot it there. And, you know, I remember in the morning, maybe 10 o'clock, in the middle of the first case, And it was a really brutal case where a mother was, was suing her daughter and it was just brutal. I mean, just gut wrenching, just brutal. It was real. And I looked over to my right. And when you're, when you're shooting here, there's always a line feed. The editor in the truck is cutting a line feed that's going to get changed later in the edit suite, but he's just, or she's just trying to get the flow of the show and just pushing buttons, editing the entire crew, was sitting in front of one of the line theme monitors watching it they weren't at the sound boards anymore they weren't at the lighting station they weren't at the makeup station they were watching the show these people don't watch tv they make tv wow and i said to myself right there this is a hit that's exactly and it's going to be exactly that because that same morning when the makeup people came over to me she said to me i'm really pissed off at you you didn't give the daughter enough in that settlement. I'm so pissed at you. And I realized she was totally engaged, totally engaged. Yeah. She was hooked on that show. And she's she's the crew. Yeah. like that. That never happens. That never happens. So I know we have a monster. It's going to be huge. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, I
0: love that. Well, Kevin, thank you. We will definitely tune in and check it out and follow you on social if we're not already. And I wish you luck on the rest of this press tour.
1: Thank you so much. Take care.
0: The Rachel Hollis podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. Our show is edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis podcast is a 3% chance production.